We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm famous actor John Wilkes Booth. You may remember me from such patent medicine shows as Poor Mama Down the Drain or The Tragedy of Rheumatism and Juliet. Is your dinosaur always getting the grip? Is your terrible lizard south threatening to rise again and again and again? Well, try old Doc Hammond's Tyrannosaurus Remedy. It'll kill flu and flu-like symptoms dead in any number of dinosaur species, as surely as a bullet to the back of the head. Turn your sick sempertyrannus into a well sempertyrannus with old Doc Hammond's. Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, Presidential Sketch Comedy and History for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, a special episode Presidents and Pandemics. So are we recording? We are recording. We are back. In the corner, it says recording. We are back. Thank you, doctor. (laughs) Doctor. So Chelsea Deneau had previously not been an official PhD, but she is now. Woo! That is how long it it takes us to record. But you know, her undergraduate and graduate degrees since she was last on the show. Yeah, in fact, a friend of hers had a baby. The baby is now in grad school. That's amazing. It's amazing. So, um, so when you last, so Chelsea has been helping us with various presidential backgrounds. But um, well, we are recording in an era where we're all sequestered, or at least supposed to be putting on masks, or at least are supposed to be trying to not go to bars, or at least supposed to be. And all of that is arguably be because of things that maybe our leader may or may not be doing. Yeah. <laughs> which, made, which, made, yeah which made those of us at DB Comedy kind of think, huh, it's, it, is this the only time we've ever had to deal with epidemics and, and panics and pandemics in the history of the country? Listeners, you oh, cannot see Doctor. You cannot see Doctor Deneau shaking her head right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> from, so your, I'm, you know, from your tone of voice, Joe, I assume the answer to that is, is of course, this is the first time this has ever happened. Uh, <laughs> well, it's certainly the first time that sort of ever happened to most of us. Although, well, although not sort of, kind of, we'll talk about that uh, a little later. But here we are with pandemic democracy and trying to think about well. Maybe are we in an era? Maybe are we in an era that really is worse than other eras, or is it uniquely bad, or what in the heck is going on? Hey Chelsea, uh, tell yeah. us about your all-time favorite president, John Adams, and how he got his family vaccinated. I am so glad that you brought this up. I did not think that it would get brought up. Um, So it was actually not John's decision. Um, Abigail, so backing up. uh, Of course. During the season, of course it was Abigail, the best part of John. It's always Abigail. Abigail. (laughs) Uh, During the siege of Boston, uh, which was payback for the Boston Tea Party, uh, uh, 
a um, smallpox epidemic broke out in Boston and Abigail was so concerned that it would reach the farmhouse that she was living in, the family farm just on the outskirts of Boston. And so she actually contacted uh, a local doctor who was pioneering a new uh, vaccine, if you can call it that. Uh, it wasn't even called a vaccine at the time. It was variolation. And this is what got it named vaccine because it came out of a cow. Yeah, it's awful. Well, actually, um, this came out of uh, infected people. Uh, so they would actually cut into uh, one of the poxes of someone who was dead or dying. Uh, and then they would mix it into a small knife, make a cut on the person's arm and then put some of the infected pus in the person's cut. And so Abigail did this uh, and her three children also did this. Uh, and luckily everyone got the virus a, a little bit, but her daughter Abigail or Nabby as she was called, uh, got it pretty bad uh, to the point that they were worried that she might die actually of the virus. And Abigail was really nervous that she had to write John that, oh, sorry, I killed our oldest child. Also, so that you never want to have to write. Yeah. Awkward. Note to, note to self, include disclaimer about food before listening to pandemic episode. Okay. <laughs> They're on their own. They're going to listen to an episode about sickness, historical sicknesses. Right. How many times am I going to say us in this episode? You would, you would take the... Um, fluid out of an infected person's pustule and place it into the other individual? Yeah, into their, into their, a cut on their arm. Go ahead, Tommy. Oh, I was going to say, did you say that they waited until the uh, person from whom they were extracting fluid was dead or dying? Like, was that, was that your signal that you weren't getting better? Was they came over <laughs> and they're like, hey, we, we yep. wanted a little bit of, the, of your pus if we could. <laughs> they didn't even ask at that point. They were just like, Oh, yeah, he's dead. Just You're not using it, right? <laughs> That's right. Consent wasn't a thing back then. <laughs> exactly. There were no consent forms. Well, and who would have been literate to sign them? So, mm -hmm. and was, the, was this considered effective? It was considered maybe not effective, but it was considered a strategy. <laughs> it was considered a preventative measure that, right that was better than waiting for the virus not virus for the epidemic to infect you mm -hmm. normally good morrow countrymen do you suffer from or fear the smallpox perhaps you fear that the inoculation may be worse than the disease itself well fear you no longer I, Dr. Joseph Warren, and my partner, Dr. Nathaniel Perkins, have developed a tonic that will soothe all that ails you. We humbly present unto you... It's called Bing Joe's Milk and Mercury Solution, a cure for the modern man! Uh, Nathaniel, I believe we agreed that I would give the pitch for our miracle drug. Oh, sorry, Joe, I got excited. Yeah, now, where was I? Ah, yes, the milk will ease the stomach and help rebuild the bones that have been hollowed out by smallpox. Or syphilis! E yes, or syphilis. And the mercury will fight the syphilis! Smallpox, Nate, we're curing smallpox. 
And you need not take our word, gentle listeners. Renowned statesman and Boston lawyer extraordinaire John Adams took our inoculation and signed his name to a ringing endorsement. But Joe, you wrote the endorsement and signed it with his hand while he was sleeping off his inoculation pain. Do you want us to be the first two physicians in the poorhouse, Nate? Just back me up here. Oh, yes! John Adams signed a wonderful endorsement, and you can always trust a lawyer. In fact, John Adams is so trustworthy, he should be the president. <laughs> Let's not get carried away, Nate. Nobody wants Adams to be president, except for his wife, Abigail Adams. Anyway. The genius of milk and mercury is its safety. Why, a babe only minutes old can stomach milk and mercury. Look, I'm a doctor. I know what I speak of, and I shan't bore you with the medical detail. I will only say that if you come to our Massachusetts practice with the smallpox, you shall leave without it, and also with surprisingly fewer less teeth. Our practice is the cutting edge of 18th century medicine. We only use the freshest leeches, and Joe always wipes off the bone saw after we use it. I mean, not literally every time. I mean, we're doctors, not saw butlers. But you get the idea. Side effects of Nate and Joe's milk and mercury solution may include loss of appetite, loss of hair, Hessian cough, Irishman's lament, the Scottish plague, dropsy, flopsy, pudding, and pie, believing you're King George III, being King George III, and Smallpox. Mm-hmm. So, try Nate and Joe's Milk and Mercury Solution, curing smallpox, syphilis, and excess teeth since 1764. So, as we're sort of taking this broader picture of the history of pandemics in the country, the first thing that I'm hearing is, even going back to the founding of the country, there actually seemed to be some vague sense of how some of these diseases spread, even if the methodology of trying to prevent them from spreading or even curing the pandemic, curing these these illnesses was a little was a little on the crude side. Yeah, quite. <laughs> so, so as so, I'm trying to. So, my guess is. The next, after those, the, the colonial times, we start to get sort of towards the, maybe towards the Civil War in that era. And of course, we start to get smallpox because, hey, smallpox isn't uh, communicable at all. And if it is, hey, you know, it doesn't matter if Indians get it, right? Am I missing? Am I missing? So I guess my first question is, are there certain waves of illnesses that I'm missing? And... Uh, for lack of a better term, what were some of the more popular pandemics? Oh, the popular ones. <laughs> um, well, you have uh, typhus, right? Uh, you also have cholera, you know, in the early, in early cities. Those are two big um, uh, diseases that are tied, especially, again, uh, people tie them to Irish immigration, especially after the Great Potato Famine. Um, and so... Um, even in, in this, like a lot of these epidemics are happening in the 18, early, like late 1830s, but definitely into the 1840s and 50s um, in urban areas. And people are really uh, pointing to increased immigration as the reason why. So would you say that, 
I'm sorry, what were you going to say? Typhoid Mary. Mm -hmm. Typhoid Mary. Wasn't Typhoid Mary late 19th century? When did Typhoid Mary live? Yeah, I don't know. Let's look. <laughs> uh, they just talked about her on Throughline on NPR. I think it was post-Civil War. I thought it was sort of Gilded Age. Yeah, oh, yeah. Right. yeah, the Connected. 20s when she was a, a cook for some prominent families. Connected yeah, and we're talking place. about typhus versus typhoid, which sound alike, but are two different diseases. Really? Yes. What yeah, the, it's yeah, still she, the, the, she got here in 1884. Okay. And for people that weren't grossed out before, what's the difference between the two? And please give granular detail. I am not a doctor. <laughs> yes, you yes, are. You are. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm All right. We, we got you. You got Zane. Chelsea. Zinga. I'm only a doctor who can tell you that everything is a social construction. <laughs> oh, different types of bacteria. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, so is spread through food and typhus is spread through fleas. Oh, good. Yes. Okay. Okay. Mary was a cook. Um, she was a mass murderer for all intents and purposes. Because mm. she kind of knew she was doing, she was spreading it. Oh, well, well, she, 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 she was, she was, she was an asymptomatic carrier. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. Now, was the fact that America was in between two oceans kept was a way to actually keep keep us sort of inoculated from really horrific waves of, of illness or uh, you know aside from obviously immigrants but um you it's know, always immigrants i know well you know um they do get the job done they get, that's <laughs> right um but and it but it also tra tracks with this and i know when we get into the 19th towards the late 19th century early 20th century medicine starts to pick up a little bit like 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 we understand washing washing your hands is a good idea there's you know Especially they understand this kind of surgery of infections and you also have, now one of like what genuinely one of my favorite or sort of fascinating eras is the whole thing about the sanatoriums oh there was one in chicago where um oh gosh what's it Oh, I'm gonna look it up. Okay, because that was because a lot of that, and of course in Mi and of course in Michigan you had Battle Creek, which is why we have cornflakes okay. and all those yummy. Because that was all sort of. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, You're I mean, cornflakes was to keep you from masturbating, Joe. Yeah. Oh, is that were, why? Because because yeah. Kellogg was very concerned about making sure Americans didn't eat any meat or anything that would rile up the blood. Ah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> And he oh. felt he felt that a diet of bland oats would keep America pure. Mmm, yum. There was but, a common theory about food. If it had too much flavor, it stirred up the passions that and is made very, you nervous and yes, unproductive. I do remember. Yes, that that is true. But sanatoriums were also created for to, to combat tuberculosis. I want to say, or the yeah. kind of. Uh, the city of Chicago bought 158 acres in 1911, so a little bit later than what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, bought uh, land in North Park, what is now North Park Village Nature Center. Oh. oh, that's right. Yeah, I think I have heard of that. Wow, that's a gorgeous building. Yeah. So is the whole idea, let's get all the sick people in one area, but at least they'll be pretty and they'll be outside and everybody will be happy and cured? Well, but it's that, but it's also like 
fresh air. Yeah, bucolic settings were supposed to be good for you. Right? It's obviously, like, disease obviously comes from these, like, dense urban miasmas. So let's put people right. out where there's, like, fresh, clean air. And then it's like, can... just not that unheard of. If you think about the festering, I mean, the cholera that came out of our river and our lake as we were throwing all our feces in the lake. And you yeah. want to talk, it's more of a, typhus. I would say that it's more of an issue of coincidence instead of causation. When people are in, moving around in more space, they're not stepping on the germ. Someone just spat out of their mouths. Right. Mm. I mean, the, the idea of a dense urban population being, a, which is why New York is one of the first hotspots, because it's denser. We cough, you hit more people when you cough and sneeze. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, uh, you know, it's it's just like our beloved Teddy Roosevelt, who went and natured away his asthma and weakness. <laughs> yeah, that's right. To yeah. become strong and manly. Right. Yes. But the New York, though, punched it to death. <laughs> but the, public but he did, health. But he didn't master. But he didn't masturbate, so that's important. But if he did, <laughs> yeah, he shot know. farther than anyone else. We know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that he was, was a rough rider, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. That was the response to European plagues, was to get out of town. And that's why there was a cultural component to it, too. If you could have the wealth to avoid being in a, you know, a situation where you were going to expose yourself to germs, then you had a better chance of staying alive. Shoot. Bless you. Thank you, Mama. Can we go in now? I'm cold, and even the doctor said I'm in better health. The doctor said you are better. You must take in four hours outside a day to make sure the tuberculosis is out of your body. I haven't coughed in a week. We will do as the doctor says. I suppose. You are so fortunate you are able to get a place here in the Municipal Sanatorium for Health and Wellness, my daughter. After all, being in a sanatorium was good enough to make Teddy Roosevelt better and make him president, and it will be good enough for us. But I'll never become president like him. Shh. Breathe the air. Breathe it deep. Trust me. <coughs> You're still coughing. Oh, much less than I was as well. Hush. Mama? Must you make such a racket? Mama, how do we know sitting outside helped President Roosevelt get rid of the TB? Because he is the president, and the president is always trustworthy. He says he's bigger than a horse, and he's not. I've seen pictures. Sweetheart, a man cannot become president if he is not honest, especially about a matter as important as his health. It would be a terrible thing if people lied about a president who is ill. It would cause chaos and unrest. Well, they should bring everyone who is sick to sanatoriums, not just the rich people. Doctor, have you been reading that suffragette labor union, Balderdash? I've read everything else. I'm bored. If you were not such an intemperate and impertinent child, perhaps you may not have even have caught the TV. But you caught it before I did. Quiet is going to make the TV leave us both sooner. Hush! Bless you. Look! <laughs> Wait, where, where are you going? Need a little more medication. You said you only needed fresh air. Sometimes an elixir can be helpful too. 
and Dr. Hill's codeine bourbon tuberculosis cough syrup cure has been very helpful. It is even said that even President Roosevelt was helped by it. May I have some? You're too fragile. The last time you had some, you sang opera songs for hours. <laughs> That's just to keep me escaping an adult's body. You stay out here and I'll be back after another healthy dose. But Mama... Well, at least I can continue my reading. Why women should be allowed to vote. Don't know if there was an equivalent campaign in Chicago, but one of the reasons that New York was more successful in containing the, quote, Spanish flu, close quote, was because there had been a successful public campaign to limit the spread of tuberculosis. I mean, because, and, and cholera. I mean, New, and cholera. New York had like, gosh, maybe three, three or definitely three, but maybe four. Don't quote me. I guess you have to quote me because <laughs> it, we're recording. Recorded. Uh, three or four cholera outbreaks. Like, they yes. knew how to deal with large-scale disease outbreaks. Yeah. What they also knew to do, and I don't know if this happened in Chicago, although it would have been appropriate, is they, when they said, don't spit or you'll wind up a big pile of shit, or however, they, <laughs> or however it was translated, it was translated into every language that was spoken in the slums, as wow. they were, the tenements. So they had public health outreach. New York, I feel like New York pioneered it. And that's why they had a much lower fatality rate, you know, per population during the Spanish flu than, say, Philadelphia or Boston, or I could not tell you the stats for Chicago, because they had a public health infrastructure. My favorite thing of Chicagoan infrastructure is when we reversed the river. I mean, was that was that to get rid of cholera, or was that just to part of it? Because of the the river was so filthy, so we just wanted all our filth to go out to St. Louis. And there wasn't the going to be no <laughs> pandemic that was going to stick by this here river, my friend. Was not going to happen. <laughs> That's why we created Malort. Anyway, I mean, sending all of our worst stuff to St. Louis does sound pretty Chicagoan. Well, we're we're here. We're at the 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 pandemic that really preceded the one that we sort of, or, or the pandemic that we are now all referring to. Which, whether we want to call it that or not, whether it actually is that or not, is still referred to as the Spanish flu pandemic of. 1918, even though the president keeps saying it's 1917, which I'm convinced is because of the movie. So did it actually, okay, so it seemed to start in the Midwest and then bounced to the trenches of World War One and trenches and then spread or where, you know, do, do we know, where, where did this, where, where did it go? How did the, what was the pattern? The first observation is in Fort Riley, Kansas. So, like, scary, everyone. That's us. Like, Our bad. Nothing Spanish about it. Well, the, so the Fort Riley. We should start calling it the Fort Riley flu, then. I take exception of that. Really like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Patrick's middle name is Fort. No one knows. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick Fort Riley over here. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you sins before they land. 
Was it first observed there in 1918, or was the outbreak like even before that? Ooh, you know, I actually don't know. Um, they had trickles of it before, and then you had it, an outbreak. There were like pieces of it or pockets that were observed. Because I, I do know that, that some of the early outbreaks, which were pretty small um, and could probably have been contained, um, some of the fir early outbreaks were actually censored by wartime press. Well, you can't go around depressing people in the middle of a war. Yeah. And that was mostly the Hearst papers, correct? That was the peak of the, one of the peaks of their influence since it was sort of, they, they were, you know, they started some wars 20 years before, so they had some experience with it. And, uh, okay, where was the first outbreak? Was it in Europe or was it in, the first huge outbreak, was it in Europe or was it in the US? Uh, it was in the trenches, right? It was in the trenches, okay. Yeah. There was a particular U.S. military outpost in the north of France, as I recall, that had a very strong early outbreak. And that's actually one, could be one of the original original sources of the outbreak, that it went from there to Kansas throughout the world. Because mm. once you're in Kansas, you want to get the hell out, and that's true of, you know, the <laughs> Well, I mean, they always say Kansas is the nexus of the world. But of course, that would never. And it's up to date in Kansas right. City. And there was, there was never <laughs> even any fighting in Spain because that's the reason the Hearst papers were pissed off at Spain and the reason why they wanted to name it the Spanish flu because they thought it was some weird punishment. Well, it's it's because because so, Spain was neutral, they were the only country that was actually reporting the full extent of the flu because everyone else was like, Shh, if we tell people that all of our soldiers are dying of disease, they'll think we're weak. Hmm. Yeah. Was the flu one of the reasons the war ended? Uh, I I don't like to attribute it. Uh, yeah, it probably didn't help at all. Because <laughs> I mean, it, it was already to the point that so once America enters World War One, it's pretty much done, right? They're a they're a fresh, uh, technologically savvy. Diseased, uh, diseased, um, but also um, America really does see this as a moment to like prove itself on the international stage. You know, one of my favorite, this is getting totally off of pandemics, but one of my favorite moments of World War One is uh, General John Pershing walking up to Lafayette's grave and being like, We've arrived, like we're back. Lafayette, here we are. <laughs> Took us a little bit, but <laughs> okay, Chelsea. Five star general. Better late Let's... than ever. Hello, President Wilson. Thank you for consenting to see me before the parade starts. Of course, Mr. Copeland. I assume you want to write a stirring American symphony in my honor. May I suggest fanfare for the uncommon man? Oh, that's Aaron Copeland, who's much younger and no relation. I'm Dr. Royal Copeland, public health commissioner for New York City. Oh, I, I see. I've no intention of being rude, but I'm afraid we must keep this interview brief. I'm expected to mount a miniaturized replica of the Santa Maria in ten minutes. That's why I wanted to talk. I'm asking you to cancel this parade in the name of public safety. Are you insane? 
In this time of war, a parade to honor Christopher Columbus, discoverer of America and a man who overcame Italianness, will stir the patriotism of all New Yorkers, from the mightiest captains of finance to the lowliest immigrant scum. We must make this world safe for democracy. You're making it safe for disease. There's a danger that this parade will make this epidemic worse. What epidemic? I haven't declared an epidemic. The Spanish flu isn't waiting for you, Mr. President. If the Spanish cannot be bothered with the war, I cannot be bothered with their bacterium. Actually, it might be a virus. No one knows. And it's only associated with Spain because their king fell ill. Labeling it the Spanish flu might be a form of slander. Uh, well, speaking of Spain and slander, would you really blacken the fair name of Columbus by linking it to some plague? Heaven forbid. I would think you too, Mr. Wilson, would rather be remembered in history for your great achievements than not how you endangered thousands of lives by demanding that the city allow a gigantic parade down Fifth Avenue. Foolish <laughs> man, I'm not leading a parade down Fifth Avenue. I'm leading a parade down the Avenue of the Allies. Which was Fifth Avenue until you ordered it changed yesterday. Although, if I'm being honest, I was heartened to see you paying some attention to the city because you've been no help whatsoever in helping us fight this epidemic. I'm under no obligation to help you with this silly seasonal bug. It's a local problem. Yes, it's a local problem all over the country. Exactly. So why don't I tend to my mission and you tend to yours? I'll remind Americans of the noble heritage they share, and you protect the unwashed masses from getting the sniffles. Give them all blankets or something. There's some debate, sir, as to whether blankets stop or spread disease. Mr. President, our missions are one and the same. New York City provides you with soldiers and armaments so you can win the war. But the soldiers you sent to France get sick, return to New York Harbor on disease-ridden ships, and spread the illness among workers. We've had to stagger factory ships so the flu won't stop arms production. You're only doing your duty as Americans. In addition, we've had to build temporary emergency rooms, ban children from going to the movies, and print leaflets in 50 languages. We improvised a response to this crisis because we received no guidance from the federal government. You think I have time to worry about children going to the movies? Movies are trivial entertainments. Except Birth of a Nation, that was a masterpiece. And I can't be bothered with such trifles while failing empires and ensuring a just and lasting peace for mankind. You make an excellent point, sir. You're the most important man on Earth. What would happen should you fall sick? Do you think I haven't considered that? I've prayed about my health and concluded that the Lord is protecting me from harm for the sake of humanity. But should his mighty foot slip and I am incapacitated, he has blessed the world with an able executive ready to assume my mantle. You have a lot of faith in Vice President Marshall. Who? No, I mean my lovely wife, Edith. Since we married four years ago, she's made me an even greater man than I already was. Should I fall ill, she'll be ready, willing, and able to help me fulfill all presidential duties. What a stroke of luck for this country. But what if you bring the virus from this celebration to the White House and sicken your poor wife? You can't have your cake and eat it too. Your vile puns are no more persuasive than your impudent manner. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have a papier-mâché galleon to command, unless you have another absurd request. Yes, sir. Could the government buy a few thousand shovels for me? I'll need to dig a few mass graves after this parade kills half its spectators. My dear Dr. Copeland, do you remember that war I spoke of earlier? 
There are trenches to dig and casualties to bury. My shoveling capacity has been exhausted. I'm not so sure of that. Anyway, Felicigioni di Colombia. Virgil, I believe. Or as we'd say it in English, great glory to greater men. Copeland, actually. Or as we'd say it in English, thanks for nothing. The pl- if the you know Spanish if you quote Spanish flu I wish you everyone listening to us could see me doing the finger flexions when I say Spanish flu. If it didn't end World War One, it started World War Two. Yes. Oh damn! You agree with me? We can't argue about this one. <laughs> I kind of do, only because um, elaborate for those of us who yes. are not aware of that conspiracy theory. <laughs> I, I don't want to say it's a consp- I, I'm not going to draw like the direct connection, but it definitely contributes to, right? So World War II really starts because of economic unrest in Germany in the 1920s and 30s. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that has to do with the fact that there were not, that Germany had lost, gosh, what was it? Like 40% of their young male population. And those are the people who are directly impacting the economy. To say nothing of the fact that the person who probably could have set, who are, at least in theory, could have negotiated a settlement that would not have been so punitive towards Germany, got sick, perhaps by, got sick and then got a stroke. And of course we're talking about, and we finally wind back to what we're talking about, one Woodrow Wilson. Oh. Wilson during the was it Versailles where the uh, uh, the treat Versailles that was where the treaty yep. that uh, mm-hmm. he was in such shitty shape. Don't ask me to say that three times fast during the Versailles negotiations that he could not stop his British or French counterparts from running roughshod on Germany yep. and imposing ruinous reparations. Another yep. word. You another just, phrase I can't you're just giving yourself that. all the tongue twisters today, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now let's, it's funny because we're, we're kind of going to Versailles, Versailles. So let's let's walk it back a little bit to maybe pre-pandemic Woodrow Wilson. Is there something <laughs> about him, his leadership, his decisions that sort of set up the spread, made it worse, uh, again, not to draw any parallels with any potential leaders that we can possibly think of, but you know, what, what, what the hell did he do or not do? <laughs> uh, well, I will say I am not a huge Woodrow Wilson fan. I mean, he loves himself so much. No one else has to. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like who, who is? Mm-hmm. Um, well, when does he catch it? Or I'm sorry, alleged, did he ever, did he actually catch the Spanish flu? Allegedly, no. Allegedly, though, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the great part about allegations is uh, I don't know. The word on the dark web is <laughs> 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 oh, good. Uh, Man, well, the res- response yeah. to the Spanish flu was so contingent upon the government that you had running your state or city. And obviously that hasn't changed that, you know, that's changed enormously since in the past century. Obviously. Mm. That, uh, let's see, New York, you know, implemented some very, what sound counterintuitive, children were safer in school than they were at home in their tenements. So schools were open, movies were closed. 
they were a little more open and there were a lot of outdoor school school there was a lot of outdoor schooling that took place there's some great photos of of uh women of, in fields with setting up chalkboards and teaching um which, which is um, but you yeah like New York did a very good job St. Louis uh, shut everything down right away they survived it pretty well Philadelphia Phila and Philadelphia supposedly was warned like don't do this march uh, and then Chicago and then they did and I think 20,000 died and then Chicago had done fairly well except there was in the uh, Glenview Naval Station that at first they did well and then they started to let families in oh and and then the families got got caught it along with a lot of the sailors and they did everything they could to try to keep both they did a lot to keep the bodies on uh, on the in the fort so that they wouldn't cause any panic hmm. And then there were also the two, again, there were the two waves and it was that second, again, they talk about the second wave in October that really, really did the number. But then it did, but then it actually did disappear. Well, I mean, one of two things happen. You either get an inoculation or it runs through the population and people get immune or they die. Viruses mutate, so... Right. I do believe the Spanish flu virus is still with it today in a far less virulent, far less lethal form. H1N1. Exactly. H1N1 is a variation of this. Is because yeah, that mutation. was all the panic that we had. Uh, what was it? Ten years ago? Five. Yeah, but that was always called swine flu, and never like Spanish flu two or something. DB Comedy presents the Electables. This episode's sketches were written and produced by Gina Bucola, Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. This episode's sketches were performed by Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production of the Electables podcast is by Joseph Fedorko. The Electables concept was created by Patrick J. Riley. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.com, who is the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's website, dbcomedy.com. And follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy and Twitter at DB Comedy Chicago. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading.